My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the United Kingdom once again through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Starting with the housekeeping, um, as in every episode of Boulder this week, we don't have a lot of housekeeping except your voice a little bit, right? That's right, and my apologies to the listeners. Um, I've got a little bit of a cold, nothing serious, but I hope that my voice will not be too uh, distracting from the contents of today. However, we do like to see the positive in almost everything, and this situation has allowed us to move uh, from our usual recording time to a day a little bit later in the week. It's currently Sunday, which allows us to be a bit more topical, um, because usually there's about a one-week delay uh, from, from the recording to the publishing of the episodes. Um, and this allows us to, uh, to talk about the United Kingdom this week, and yeah, more about this in the, this week's question of the week. As our listeners know, we are big fans of Liz Truss, and yesterday we received a question about the resignation from a listener. Does Liz Truss' resignation solve the problem in UK politics? This question and the news of the past week convinced us to postpone our planned episode on neocolonialism to next week and talk about the United Kingdom again. So there will, be, will not be a specific question about the question of the week, and we will simply start with What are the facts in two minutes? Since we recorded our episode on the United Kingdom, episode 12, which was published on the 21st of September, the following things have happened. Liz Truss presented her mini-budget together with her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, basically giving unfunded tax cuts to the rich in order to stimulate growth, 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 and the hope for a trickle-down effect that would expand the economic pie. This was very badly received, not just among voters, but especially among international markets who believed that this was an irresponsible step and as a result, the pound plummeted and interest rates shot up. This led to two weeks of political turmoil, ending in Liz Truss sacking her chancellor and reversing parts of the announced policies. The newly appointed chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, took control of the financial situation by reversing most other aspects of the mini-budget as well and sidelining Liz Truss in the process. This then led to last week's quick succession of events in which the Conservative Party fell into, the, into complete chaos with Home Secretary Suella Braverman being sacked after a row with Liz Truss and Tory members of Parliament being bullied into voting in, uh, with the government uh, on a Labour-introduced fracking bill. That night, the Conservative chief and deputy whips, the people responsible for keeping members of the party in line, resigned and unresigned a few hours later. But the damage had been done. And the following morning, Liz, Liz Truss was visited by the chair of the 1922 committee, who told her she no longer had the trust of her own parliamentarians. Two hours later, she resigned. And with this, I think we can move on to the next segment. What is the bubble? Um, Boulder, first of all, it's, I mean, this is, uh, this is episode 17, and we just talked about the United Kingdom five episodes ago, and we also talked about the United Kingdom in our recap episode. Why do we talk about the UK so much? The first reason, obviously, is that um, things are happening in the UK that are easier to commentate on than, you know, Germany, which is incredibly boring in its politics, Dario, so stable and so dependable. Um, that's 
an important reason. But beyond that, the United Kingdom, of course, is a country that uh, appeals to our listeners um, simply because we're an English-speaking uh, podcast, but also because the United Kingdom it has a special place in international relations. Don't forget that it wasn't that long ago, about a hundred years ago, that Britain still had by far the largest empire that the world had ever seen. And the successor in terms of power to the British Empire has been the United States, which very much is a child of that United Kingdom, of Great Britain, right? On top of that, the world that we are analyzing in our podcast the Western world and the decay of the Western world and our warnings for the Western world are mostly exemplified by that Anglo-Saxon world. That doesn't mean that it doesn't include other parts of Western Europe, that it doesn't include Japan or South Korea, but the Anglo-Saxon world, Canada, United States, Great Britain, have been the, the leaders of this Western democratic bubble that we are uh, experiencing today. And if the United States is sort of gone already clearly too far, the United Kingdom is on the brink of going too far when it comes to income inequality, which we discussed last time, or when it comes to reducing the role of government, when it uh, comes to looking at the world as a managerial challenge rather than an ideological challenge. The United Kingdom has has a role of warning like the canary in the coal mine uh, for the remainder of Europe. Things that are going badly now in the United Kingdom might very well go badly very quick, very soon in Spain or in France or in Germany. And for the listeners that did not listen to our episode 12, which you should absolutely do, by the way, um, and because we do not want to uh, repeat ourselves, uh, could you quickly just summarize uh, what we discussed in the last episode in the United Kingdom on what the bubble is? The biggest, the biggest problem for us is that somewhere along the way, and maybe this was most exemplified by uh, New Labour in the 1990s, um, when I was a student in the United Kingdom, was that somewhere along the way, Western politics turned from a content-driven, principled uh, conversation. I mean, not, not saying that all politicians in the past were principled, but the, it was about principles. What kind of society do you want to create? It turned away from that into a society that was about managing the economy. And what we started to expect from politicians, and like I said, New Labour, Tony Blair, in many ways started this, but then was very happily embraced by uh, his successors, is the idea that the government is there to make sure that markets are happy, that markets are functioning well, that there are no major shocks, etc., etc. And it is taking away the importance of actually leading a country. Managing a country is not the same as leading one. Having a vision is crucial for a political system. And voters should care about that vision and should vote for visions. And at some point you can have a vision that advocates greater government interference. In other, uh, someone else can very legitimately claim that it's better to have less government interference. But there has to be an end goal to what they want to achieve. There has to be an idea of this is the world that I want to create in the next 50 years. And that's... Thinking that political thinking has disappeared from the scene 
with all kinds of damaging consequences. And most importantly, that we are sleepwalking as Western society into a future that one day we'll wake up and we won't recognize anything that was good in the past about our society. So simply saying growth, 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 and we want the GDP to grow, that's not enough of a vision. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. And as we discussed in last week's episode, and, and that's kind of the nice thing of uh, uh, today, I think, that we can relate back to various episodes. We can also re um, relate back to the institutions episode from very early on of this uh, podcast series. Uh, as we discussed last week, growing an economy can only be a tool and it's a dangerous tool. And so the, the idea that Liz Truss believes that leadership means telling the country that you want to grow, 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 shows exactly how far we've lost the plot already, how far we've gone. Um, the idea that growth in itself should be something to be celebrated doesn't make any logical sense. And it certainly is a very clear case of us having turned our politicians into managers. And we need to go back to politicians that actually want to provide content to society that say this is the kind of society we should live in yeah and today we will relate a lot of, a lot of what we say about the united kingdom to these to this infamous uh, episode three uh, the hollowing out of institutions and about this broader trend that we are not just unlucky with choosing a few bad individuals as the united kingdom um where first it was boris johnson the i mean the I think, I think you could say that Theresa May also wasn't the greatest pick. And now you had Liz Trust that it's not just an, an accumulation of bad choices, but this is that we're actually becoming less competent. I mean, maybe, I mean, well, maybe the voters are becoming less competent, but certainly the politicians. Well, politicians would be great middle managers in, in a large multinational. You know, there, there would be amazing that the current crop of politicians would be great in those places where all they have to do is make sure that the accounts are being taken care of and all that kind of thing. Um, but politicians are certainly becoming less competent when it comes to their ability to lead the country, their ability to actually fulfill their traditional political role. And this goes beyond democracy, right? Politicians in, in authoritarian regimes also need, to, if they want to be good at what they do, they need to go beyond simply saying, I... I run day-to-day -day affairs. They need to tell themselves and the world around them, this is what we're trying to achieve. We, we are currently training a society to think in practical, professional terms. We are training a society, whether it's at high school or whether it's at university, whether it is just in general life, to be good at a specific job that they're doing. Universities are more and more focused on how can we get our students as quickly as possible onto the job market, which is, of course, a huge step away from the ideal of a university simply expanding the mind, expanding your horizons, expanding your knowledge base. The idea that you go to university and you could study philosophy or Latin or something that has no practical purpose for the job that maybe later on you're going to have. But what it does is it develops you as a person. That idea is gone. Everyone now wants to do business studies or wants to uh, study financial markets or accounting or whatever it is that they, they choose, but not something that is simply there to broaden your personal understanding of the world. 
And this is a huge problem. So this leads to a society where people no longer have the broad general knowledge necessary to understand all the incredible complexities of the world. And this is the case for politicians. So the new crop of politicians simply do not have the intellectual capacity to genuinely understand what they're doing. But it's also the same for voters. It's the same for a society that is no longer trained to think in broad terms, in to think in, in terms of, I need to understand many different disciplines, even if they're not related specifically to my daily life and my daily habits. This is also related to the fact that we now live in a world where younger generations are filled with information coming at them from the internet, which is not the same as building up knowledge. They don't read books anymore. Statistics show this clearly. Fewer and fewer young people read a normal book, whether it's on your tablet or with pages. Books are too long. They're too boring. And what people do is they quickly look up things. But looking up things is not developing your own general knowledge. So it's not just a political problem. It's a societal problem that then gets translated into a world where nobody has a broader vision beyond their own narrow skill set. And I think if we want to combine all of these things uh, that universities are no longer about teaching the mind, but teaching a job and that politicians are in general uh, becoming or are they're just less intellectual is that being a politician is now seen as a job. It's no longer um, that someone from the business world um, says, okay, I'm going to go into politics to represent business interests. It's no longer that I don't know, maybe a teacher says uh, the education uh, in this country is terrible. I'm going to go and fix it. It's no longer just practitioners from the real world, I'm going to call it, who are entering politics because they want to make a change about their profession. It's, it's that you're now studying to become a politician. I mean, I, I did my degree in international relations and I'm currently doing the second one on top. Um, where there's a lot of students, and we're talking about 24, 25-year-old kids. <laughs> kids, I almost want to say, because we all we have ever done is go to university or to school. Uh, there's very little real-life real life experience, and they want to become politicians. So we're studying to become politicians. I'm not. Don't worry. <laughs> it's a field I'm not interested in politics. Um but this is, I, I think this kind of embodies this overall problem, is that uh, there are now people who are studying to become politicians and they have, no, they have no real understanding of the world. They have an understanding of political science and of politics. They can read the news, but I'm not sure whether that qualifies them to become a politician. Well, and the fascinating thing here is that there's a nice parallel with the grow, grow, grow uh, analysis studying to become a politician surely is only a tool or becoming a politician is only a tool to achieve something else once it is no longer a tool but it's just your end goal i'm a politician yay for me then you don't get why politicians exist right politicians exist there to lead the world into a specific direction so of course in the past there were also a lot of people who turned out to become lifelong politicians who were there for many years but they definitely did start believing that going into politics meant that they could change the world it seems that nowadays there's so little difference first of all um, in vision between different parties and secondly young people are no longer trained to look at the big picture to understand all the the deep intellectual and philosophical debates that we've had for thousands of years and therefore 
they believe that just being a, as they would look in the mirror, being a relatively good person and just voting and playing along with their party on a daily basis is what they're supposed to do, rather than saying, how can I actually make the world a better place through my privileged position as politician? And that is a huge problem at the moment. Mm -hmm. So we already talked about governments or politicians just being economic managers, basically. And here I think it's it would be interesting to talk about the role of financial markets for a minute, um, especially the role of financial markets over the government, because while this trust policy um, of on, on cutting taxes may have been bad, uh, an interesting thought that I read um, on, on, on Twitter the other day was why are we only criticizing this budget idea, how are we not criticizing that financial markets um, and to a certain extent, maybe speculation, were able to shut it down um, this quickly. Is the power that financial markets yield over over policy ideas, which, aside from the fact whether they're good or bad, I th I personally think that it's it's a dangerous indicator that the reaction of financial markets dictates how the country sees um, a policy and not necessarily the other way around. Completely. That is elevating those markets to a godlike status. Because then if those markets reject your policies, then that means that you failed because you will be tested, you will be evaluated according to whether you are pleasing the markets, which is of course a huge turnaround to what any liberal democracy should want to be. A liberal democracy should be a, country, a place where politicians are playing a long-term game, which sometimes financial markets will like in the short term or not, but in the long term create a prosperous society. Financial markets are not interested in what happens 10 years from now. They're not interested in what happens 20 years from now. They're interested in what happens next month or tomorrow or next month or maybe next year. Um, and they will react according to that. And that is fine. Financial markets have to do their thing, but we shouldn't take them too seriously. And yet we have gone completely the other way because it's the only thing why we apparently still have politicians to make sure that those financial markets are stable and um, approve of policymaking. See, and, and I think now I can I can admit that uh, this tweet was from a former economics professor of mine um, and that he uh, made a very interesting comment about this regard in general as well. And I think that the embodiment of all of this was basically Donald Trump. Who, who never stopped uh, shutting up about, oh, look how much the markets like my policies, look how great the markets are, and in turn then is criticizing uh, Joe Biden purely based on look how badly the markets are doing under him. It is unbelievable in a way, right, that we do not, you don't have to criticize, you don't have to dislike markets, and I don't think we do, um, you don't have to be critical of the existence of financial markets with all their volatility, with all their fluctuations, and with even with some of the less palatable aspects of markets, because markets can be nasty places um, in many ways. Uh, you don't have to criticize them to understand that they only play a very specific role in society. And in the short term, yeah, they're going to sometimes do some damage. Sometimes they're... Uh, gonna react very well to certain policies that's all fine let them be them but 
surely as a society there are longer term issues that we need to focus on and the fact that someone like donald trump can get away with just pointing at the markets and arguing look shares are going up um and uh, the dollar is strong and those kinds of things says something about how we evaluate success in our days and this also then goes back to that grow growth growth um, narrative from Liz Truss and it goes back to this whole new generation of both voters and politicians who no longer understand the full complexity it's almost as if we've given up on understanding complexity as if we say you know the financial markets give us numbers and those numbers are easy to understand just why you know at universities we like giving grades not that grades are actually all that useful as a tool but it's easy to understand if you get a 10 then that is better than a 9 wonderful um if the markets go up by you know if stock prices go up by 10 percent, that is better than if they go down by two percent so that is an easy way to understand the market to under, sorry to understand the world and we don't actually have to make an effort to understand the underlying dynamics anymore. And that is a shocking indictment of where we are as liberal humanity, surely. Yeah. And please don't take grades away. Um, they validate my feelings. Um, but, <laughs> and I mean, when we're talking about this, uh, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, especially when we're talking about Donald Trump, but also talking about others, is that there's too much ideology in this world. Um, we came across this one minute that we would like to, to show to our listeners from uh, LBC, a British radio channel, where Andrew Marr, an influential British journalist, was asked about the problems with government, and he gave an interesting answer based on ideology. Wow. And and it was, was not just this iteration of the Conservative government, but perhaps everyone since 2016 has it and has their politics because of the way the party has changed since then just been built on sand are we seeing that sand just collapse underneath them i think it's it's the lure of extreme thought the lure of ideology and you see it on the left of politics at times as well as the right people think well if only we were pure simple answers if only we were more extreme if we got away from all these complicated irritating diplomats and civil servants and experts who keep telling us it's more complicated than we think uh, and got and, and just just cut through. Well, life is complicated. The modern economy is very complicated, and you can't just take a machete to it. And and I think it's that kind of simplistic thinking. And I think what really went wrong. So, Boulder, after listening to this, I mean, some people say there's too much ideology; it blinds us. Um, some others say there's not enough. Uh, where are we where are we on this question? Well, as, as we said before, we want ideology. At least we want content, call it ideology, call it what you like. We want content-driven conversations in society uh, as well as in politics, especially in politics for the reasons we've mentioned before. What is happening here, which is interesting, is that Andrew Marr and many others are seeing populist movements, which, by the way, can be extremely damaging, don't get me wrong. Those populist movements typically on the extreme right nowadays, but there are some on the extreme left as well, uh, they deviate from the managerial approach that's, that we're having with respect to liberal democracy at the moment and that you and I are criticizing in this episode and other episodes. So you've got a mainstream that says, look, it's, it's just about stability. It is just about that middle ground. And, and, you know, that's complex enough. And then populists come in 
and they start simplistic messages we, and Romar calls them ideological and that is bad for us. Uh, usually the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Well, I mean, my father always used to tell me everything in moderation and I, I have a lot of sympathy for moderation in this world. That's true. But to call the populist movements the ideologues says a lot about the center parties, right? That the center parties no longer have an ideology. The, the problem is not for me to, um, to say, hey, um, the, those populist parties are, are coming up with simplistic solutions. Sure, they, they come up, but I, I hardly would call them ideological myself. Yeah, they, they shout some things about immigrants or they shout some things about COVID being a hoax or, or something like that. Fine, I, I wouldn't call that ideology. True ideology is having a vision for the world explaining clearly where you want to go and just keeping foreigners out of your country is not a vision for your country. That's nothing to do with ideological principled conversation. What Andrew Marr is confusing here, and I'm afraid most of mainstream politics and media are confusing, is the difference between moving outside of the centrist bubble and the need to actually have a content-driven debate. And I wish, I wish we still had mainstream political parties that understood that simply managing the world is not enough, that you need to clearly explain where you want to go with the world. And that's conflating populism with ideology is almost a way for the centrist managerial system to protect itself. And I think here it's important to maybe provide a bit of a definition for ideology simply because it has become a term that is loaded. So, I mean, when we talk about ideology, and we just stole this definition from Oxford uh, Dictionary, is that it is a system of ideas and ideals, especially one which forms the basis of, basis of economic or political theory and policy. It's, it's a basically, I mean, for me, ideology is a lens through which you analyze the world. Um, it's One could say that the Western bubble is an ideology. Um, that's what we are doing here is ideological thinking. Um, but it is simply about looking at the world. So when we're talking about, about for example, feminist ideology, it is not necessarily an, an end. Um, it is very much about seeing the world and analyzing the world through this one lens and seeing the problems through this lens, which in itself isn't a bad idea. Um, it just becomes a bad idea if you, if you only push for this narrative and disregard everything else. But if, if properly done, that lens is one that has a clear picture in your mind of at some of, of, of what kind of world you want to live in, right? And even when you get there, you have to keep on fighting for that ideology. You have to keep on holding up it. So in that, in that sense, it's not an end, um, but it's a continuous process. But it's, it's, uh, it's fundamental. However, the problem for our current crop of politicians and voters is that ideology ideological conversation is difficult, it is messy, it is imperfect. Um, it is often associated with capitalism versus communism. And since communism is gone, uh, there you know the only thing left is capitalism. Ideology sh should be redefined in our society, right? Like how do we, what, what kind of uh, world do we want to live in? How are we going to deal with the huge environmental problems? How are we going to deal with the huge... Um, social inequity, inequality that exists in our world today, that requires some messy but hugely important conversations where some people will have 
very legitimate visions that differ from other very legitimate visions. Let's have that clash of ideas. I don't hear clash of ideas anymore in our society because people seem to have distanced their psychology from that. They, they have distanced their thinking about the world and it's simply about solving problems. But solving a problem without a bigger vision um, is hollow. It, it, it doesn't lead to a better tomorrow. Um, so relating this back to, to the United Kingdom, what's the ideology of, of um, mistrust? Well, interestingly enough, and we said this in the UK episode, um, she has very little, by from what we can, can tell, understanding of her own ideology. She hasn't formulated it. Again, I think for the same reasons as nowadays, you just don't formulate ideology because it doesn't seem to be necessary in the minds of people. But intuitively, it's clear that she has a very, very strong ideology that she's been spoon-fed with. I am, she wrote this book 10 years ago together with her former, well, she's no longer Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister together with the former Chancellor wrote a book together 10 years ago. Uh, her ideological intuition is very much about a world where markets just run the place. Their, their, their ideology is an extreme version of that managerial perspective that the whole society is having right now. She just goes a few steps further. But there are many, many more like that of a weird combination of the Peter Principle and the Dunning-Kruger effect. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is a psychological term that is used to show that people cannot evaluate their own competence, their own intelligence uh, beyond that le their level of intelligence. So if you are not very knowledgeable on a topic. So you've got the Dunning-Kruger effect, people not understanding how little they know, combined with the Peter principle, right? Which is a managerial principle. It's, it's the idea that people get promoted to levels of incompetence. So let's say that you are a great engineer, very good at designing or building mobile phones, and your boss tells you, well, you know what, you should lead a team. Okay, you're still gonna be okay in leading a team that also builds mobile phones because you you can sort of guide them you can you can um, tell them what they do wrong and what they do right you can teach them so even though managing is not really your thing you're still okay at it that goes quite well and then your boss says wow you did such a good uh, a good job with uh, managing your team the reason why you did a good job was that you're a good engineer not because you're a good manager and you know you should lead the, you should lead the whole department and at that moment you are completely distanced from the original strength of your professional expertise. You're no longer designing mobile phones. You're just managing people. You know, you're no longer near the building of mobile phones. And at that moment, you have been promoted to incompetence. At that moment, you are your success led to you getting a job that you should never have gotten. This is a, this is a very common pattern in business. It's a very common pattern in society in general. And that, in many ways, applies to people like Liz Truss as well, right? What made them good backbenchers doesn't make them good prime ministers. And certainly, if being a good backbencher is not about content or ideology, but playing the game within your party. And I think with this, we can move on to the next category. What is the problem? 
because exactly the this I mean the process that, that we just described and the bubble we described has led to the last two weeks, uh, the infamous forty five days. Um, and I, I think it's time to actually look at what happened particularly in the last week uh, in detail and see how how these results of the bubble are causing problems and, and real problems. And the first one um, that I think I want to talk about here is, and I mentioned this during the fact sheet, is that at some point, um, so, so you had this uh, vote in Parliament introduced by the Labour Party on fracking, um, something that is somewhat controversial in the country where, I mean, I think the Tories overall um, are in favor of it. However, there are certain uh, constituencies that are very much have a problem with it and those are represented by the Tories. And there, um, there was a situation, there was a picture of it where members of parliament were, were bullied into voting with the Tory party on this because it was, well, the notion was given from the government that this would be some form of vote of confidence into this trust. And I, I think it's, it's important to mention the, the details that happened here because there was screaming uh, happening in front of the parliament, something that uh, I'm not sure whether that's the appropriate form of exchanging arguments. And then, I mean, there are allegations of, of then also some physical pressure being put, people basically being dragged through the door which indicated their vote. And people shouting with the media in earshot distance, I am effing done. Um, I uh, I cannot, cannot effing take it anymore. People in complete despair. So this became a circus, a political circus on a vote that you would like as a voter to simply be about the question, is fracking a good thing or not? It became a political circus with people, with politicians showing very little regard for the core of their job, which is to make important decisions for the country and long-term traditions. And in Britain, these traditions are even practically more important than in other countries because Britain does not have a written constitution in the way that most other countries, Western liberal democracies do. Um, it is very much based on custom. It's very much based on on accepting the way things have been done in the past and respecting those ways and continuing to do those things to keep to keep the system together. But over the past five, six years, that has been completely collapsing around Brexit and uh, uh, lots of Tory MPs left the Tory party after they felt that their government uh, took steps that were not in line Brexit steps that were not in line with those traditions that were even unlawful and that is a process that's continuing right now so you you have a political system that has no clue anymore of what they're doing and why they're actually there yeah yeah and I mean from an outsider's perspective uh, so from the German perspective there is a lot of admiration for the British Parliament and its traditions and all of them uh, them being, not all of them, but them being undermined in this process, I, I, th I think we can, we, can, we can hear probably talk about a, a text message I sent to you, uh, basically the night that this happened, where I asked you when is the United Nations going to intervene? Because in, in here, maybe hinting at uh, next week's episode about new colonialism, if, some, if, if scenes like this were to, were, to, were to happen in any other parliament, Western countries would very quickly condemn uh, the undermining of democracy and advocating for the free, for the for the free vote uh, of any of any members of parliament right and what is and this is a common i mean the hypocrisy is there is common right among the west so whenever something happens in our countries 
it is something that is unfortunate and it needs to be criticized, but it's not a sign of a deep systemic problem. When it happens in other countries, in countries that are not like us, that are not liberal and democratic, then it is a sign of deeply seated corruption, etc., etc. Um, now, the the problem with, with parliamentary democracy is that often parliamentarians are instructed and are expected to vote with their party even if they don't agree which is by the way a problem but britain was one of the countries where that was actually least uh, least visible because just parliamentarians in britain are still directly connected to their constituents they get voted by a uh, for by a very specific group of constituents in their constituencies um, they are technically less obliged to follow their leadership. Whereas where maybe in a country like Spain or in the Netherlands, sometimes you feel that parliamentarians are just there to applaud their great political leaders because they have very little individual ability to actually express themselves and to go against government decision-making. And uh, in Britain, there there is a very long tradition of parliamentarians saying, you know what? With all due respect for my own party, I'm going the other direction because my obligation is towards my constituents. That seems to have gone as well now. Oh, it's. It, I mean, this is very much the case where uh, what I what I always. I mean, watching a British parliamentary session, and I can only recommend this to any of the listeners. I personally think it's a great form of entertainment. But what I really like there is that uh, in agreement. There's either a yay or nay shouting. Um, while in Germany, in the German parliament, uh, the, the leader of, of the party or the faction sits all the way at the, at the front, basically, of part of, of, of the round. When he starts clapping, everyone else is clapping. Uh, so exactly that notion that, uh, that you're talking about. Um, however, I do want to take this to the damages that this has to democracy as a whole, because now we have the situation where... Um, the last elections were, were two years ago, where where um, Boris Johnson was elected uh, prime minister. Well, I mean, not directly, but he was the front runner of the party and he was very much associated to, to the Tories. And he did, I mean, you know, win the election together with the Tories. And then you had him step down, being forced out, and then Liz Truss uh, being voted uh, in by basically uh, the, the members of that party. And now you have you're going to have the third prime minister which I personally think um, the the natural decision here should be new elections, right? After a chaos like this, you want to have new elections. However, we're not even talking about this because everyone already knows that uh, the Conservative Party is never going to do this because this would be political suicide. I want to criticize for half a second that we're not even having that conversation because for us it's too obvious that this would not that this would go against party politics. I think this is already part of the problem following our institutions. But at the same time, um, yeah, there is a bit of a, I would call it maybe a lack of a democratic mandate for whoever is going to follow this trust now. I, I do want to push back a little bit on, on this because we are now living in a world, and again, this has to do with that managerial complexity, where we're more and more looking at political leaders as the only source of policymaking, as, as the only ones that really matter. So in a presidential system like the United States, that makes a lot of sense, right? The president has a lot of power and gets counterbalanced in some ways by the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, but you vote directly for President Biden or vote directly for President Trump, that system. But in parliamentarian democracies in Europe, what you do is you vote for the party. 
and that party happens happens to have a leader and sure that leader is a little bit more important than everyone else but it's the party that matters and by putting so much emphasis on the individual on boris johnson on list trust that takes away responsibility from the party itself right as if the moment the party has elected a leader they're no longer responsible for policy making because it's the leader who does everything this is visible in britain but it's also visible in other countries i always get very nervous when here in spain I hear Spanish people talk about President Sanchez, um, in, uh, where, whereas, of course, Spain is, has a monarchy and it's Prime Minister Sanchez, but then they say it's Presidente del Gobierno, President of the Government. But by saying President Sanchez, you're already making the Prime Minister way more important than he should be because the Prime Minister just is the chair of the meeting of ministers for his own party. There's nothing, there's nothing more to it. So... I have no, personally, I have no problem in there. I think I deviate a little bit from what you said. I have no problem with the Tory party once again electing a leader and then that leader becoming prime minister because it should be about the party. The party is responsible for the mess and the party has to clean it up. It is not only Liz Truss's fault. Liz Truss was completely the wrong person for the, for this job. She should never have been there. But it's the Tories that are responsible for that, not Liz Truss and her close circle. And we need to make the distinction. And if we were to properly embrace that idea again of a being of voters voting for a party rather than voting for simply a political leader, then we would force those parties to actually more carefully and more intellectually look at what they're doing rather than just putting the blame or you know, the the credit onto their political leaders. Mm, yeah. I mean, this is, this is a very interesting conversation, uh, especially because, I mean, we talked about this a few days ago, who, who would be a good candidate to replace Liz Truss? And I actually advocated for Boris Johnson, not because I believe he's a particularly competent policymaker. I think he, he has proven himself um, not to be one. However, because from my stance, um, he has he's the only one with a more and here more in quotation marks democratic mandate, because because exactly we live in this in this world where it's more about individuals than about parties, and at the last election, people were very much looking at Boris and saying, I I want I want him to to lead the country. For me, having this having I think it's two hundred thousand uh, conservative party members. Um, very quickly within within I think three days, uh, voting electronically for the party leader, a leader who's then going to going to lead the country for the next two years, for me that undermines this idea, you know, of of a democratic mandate a little bit. While I very much see the point that it is the party that has the mandate and not the person. Yeah, my my argument almost for Boris Johnson being elected again would would not be that, like I said, because I don't feel that I feel the democratic mandate is still clearly that's that those are the rules is still in the hands of the Tory party, regardless of who their leader is. Um, but the Tory party has made such an incredible mess of governance, and not just this these past couple of months for years now, ever, ever since Brexit. They're in complete disarray. They're, they're doing so much damage to their own country that in many ways, I would almost follow a bitter short-term pill of having Boris Johnson there again and then completely collapsing the party so that they have to go back. I don't want them to disappear, but just to be voted out of office with an overwhelming majority for Labour or the Lib Dems or the SNP 
and uh, them having to go back and redefine who they want to be. I think it would be very bad if somehow over the next two years, someone like Rishi Sunak stabilizes the party and the electorate, which is already which already suffers from a lot of amnesia, uh, two years from now, sort of forgives the party and maybe Labour will still win the elections, but the Tory party will still have, let's say, 250 or 300 seats, well, not, uh, 250 uh, seats in Parliament, then that wouldn't send out the right signal, right? In many ways, you sort of want to burn the party down before they can build up again. And Boris Johnson would absolutely burn the party down. Now that we're talking about burning something down, um, let's move on to the next category. What now? And here, um, I think I think here it makes sense to actually differentiate between, so what is the short-term future? What happens now? And also, what is the long-term future? So, I mean, the short-term future is that there needs to be a new leader. Right. Um, there, there will be a new leader. And, and from a political perspective, there's the issue that we just uh, discussed. There, um, Either the Tories are going to go down in flames in the next few months because they make the wrong choice again, or they get the sort of stabilizing factor that might, I mean, might, uh, so who, because it's, it seems that there's a lot of... There, there's a lot rotten within the party, so it might actually not lead to a two-year stable government. But someone like Rishi Sunak maybe would would manage to stabilize the party, and then there are elections. And let's assume that in two years' time, um, then Labour wins just because it's time for a change, right? By the way, that is a common thing in general in in democratic systems. Even if you're a hardcore supporter of the current government in whichever country you live in. Once a government has been in place for 10 years or so, you need to understand the importance of change. You know, you can't have the same party in government all over and over and over again. That leads to corruption, leads to all kinds of problems. So even if you really dislike the opposition, it's important to recognize that once in a while, having some fresh faces is a good thing. And then four years or five years later, you, your party can come back in. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you're, you're speaking to a German who for the last 16 years lived under Queen Merkel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Towards towards the end there, towards the end she was really just a manager. Yeah. Um, there was there was there was not a lot happening um, because yeah. Even though I still insist that on at an international level she was one of the best leaders we've had for a very long time, but that's a different story. Um, but so that's that's a short term thing for for Britain and um, okay fine. The long term issue really is the question of. What do we do as a society? What do we want as a society? Are we really going to emphasize over and over again the importance for people to simply do a specific job without having broad general knowledge, without embracing complexity? You know what? The moment you build up your knowledge and you embrace complexity is also the moment that you accept that some people will have very different perspectives than you because the li- then you understand that the world isn't black and white. Dunning-Kruger doesn't apply to you anymore. You you understand that there are lots of issues you don't know. And if someone comes up with a different political perspective, you happily engage with them without getting angry with them. Or are we going down this route where we just become more and more about leading our own narrow professional lives as a politician, being a manager, as a voter, just not having the, the skill set, the knowledge set to make informed decisions. And... Um, going down a route that 50 years from now we wake up one day and uh, well you will wake up i'll be dead by then 
uh, and uh, we look around and, and think, oh, hang on, where is our liberal democracy? It's gone. It's completely disappeared. And we are now in some kind of weird market-driven technocracy with you know 10% being incredibly rich and 60% of the population living in ex, uh, abject poverty and the 30% in between desperately trying to manage their little shops or their their you know their 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 practice we need to make some really tough choices about what do we expect from our leadership but more than anything what do we expect from society at large. And that starts at an educational level and that starts at universities. And I hope that universities will understand this and that they will stop being institutions that prepare students for the job market and and go back to preparing students for understanding the beautiful complexity that life has to offer. See, I, I do want to push back a little bit on the short-term future. Um, not that you said anything wrong, just that we accept that this is the reality. Um, I, I do still very much believe that the short-term future should be new elections in the United Kingdom, uh, because that would be uh, the right thing to do and, and the, the rational thing to do. However, we live in such a rationalized world where we already know that this is not going to happen, hence we put forward a new rationale. Well, you'll get your wish if Boris Johnson gets elected leader. I mean, then then I give it a few months and then there will be general elections, I, I, I would guess. And when it comes to when it comes to the long-term future, yeah, this, um, as a young person myself, hello, I'm a young person, um, I, I do think that this notion of pushing young people into the job market as soon as possible is is wrong. And again, here I can, I can bring up the German example because... In 2009, we, we ended uh, the mandatory military service for men, which, not that I'm pro-military service, but it took away two years or, well, one and a half years of just further time for young people to develop. And then at the same time, we also took, took away one year from high school. So we, deducted, we moved from 13 years to 12 years of high school because the economy wanted younger talent that was better prepared. So I do would want to, to advocate, not that I don't want to work, but uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan yet. Um, but I do want to advocate for a world where young people do get the chance to properly find themselves, you know, where it, it is about maybe sitting in a cafe for, for an hour or two, talking to other young people, maybe to elder, to, to, to older people, and just having that intellectual discussion and being able to listen, um, Dunning-Kruger effect, do, do listen and, and acknowledge that you don't know anything and give yourself one or two more years that you don't have to finish your university degree at the age of 21 and then start working, but that you actually have some time to properly develop yourself. And this seems a great place to end this episode. No, I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, that's I, I couldn't have said it better, Dario. Absolutely. So so as a young person, um, what should we do now? Well, first of all, read. For heaven's sake, read. Um, read books, not because of your courses, not because it, it's going to be tested in an exam, but read books, sit under a tree and think about the world. Um, maybe that means that sometimes you have to forget looking at your phone for a while. You know, Take your time to expand your horizon. If you have the luxury, and I know that most young people don't have that luxury, but um, in the people listening to this podcast, a lot of them will. If you have the financial luxury to not straight away earn income, then use your 20s to develop your skills, your knowledge sets, your understanding of the world. Go and 
um, work at a library for a couple of years and just, you know, at a minimum wage, just read all the books you can find. If you if you don't even have to do that, lie lie on the beach or go to the forest and 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 write about the world and 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 look at what other authors from the past have said about these things. Please, please, please do not think that your job is the only thing that matters. Please do not think that there is nothing beyond simply having economic success. Look at philosophy, look at history, look at all the different amazing ideas that so many clever people in the past have developed. And then once you have built up your general knowledge sets, then you will be much better at your future job, whatever your future job is, but especially if your future job happens to become a politician. And listen to podcasts. And and listen to our podcast. Yeah. Not any podcast, our podcast. Yeah. Well, and then this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the United Kingdom once again. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. And we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Boulder, which closing quote did you bring for us today? One of the fundamental ideas behind liberal democracy is uh, the separation of powers. The idea that you need to have a society where different Political powers are separate from each other, the judiciary, the legislative, the executive, as can be seen in the, in the United States Constitution and all that. But that separation of powers was something that required a very deep understanding and thinking about society when this started to become a thing, because societies weren't used to thinking in such ways. It required a broad knowledge set, a broad understanding of philosophy and all that before countries in the 17th, especially the 18th and 19th century, started really embracing that separation of powers between the different pillars of uh, politics. And one of the frontrunners, founders of this kind of thinking was Montesquieu. And he said, the deterioration of government begins almost always by the decay of its principles.